Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus will be in chapter 18 this morning. As a reminder for all of you and and a, a way to catch up for those of you who may be joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we're in the third book of the Bible, this book of Leviticus, a tricky book, a difficult book, the, the kind of book we would maybe get a part way through and then quit reading uh, because it's exhausting and repetitive, but with God's help and our time over these last number of weeks, we've been edified and helped and built up by it. You remember there are two halves to the book. There's Chapters 1 through 16 leads us to this day of atonement. You'll see the cross in the middle of the picture to represent that. And this is our approach to God through, through blood. And when holiness is mentioned in these first 16 chapters, it's mentioned largely with reference to the place of the presence of God, this tent where he dwelled among his people. Well, in the second half of the book, and that's where we're at now in chapter 18, uh, the word holiness when it's used is used with reference to the people of God. And the takeaway, the simple conclusion we may draw there is that the presence of God among his people transforms his people to be holy as he is holy. We come to a holy God through blood and he transforms us to be holy as he is holy. And so we have a lot of commands on this side of the book. And uh, as we'll see, God has enabled us to keep them by his grace. The second half of the book is called the Holiness Code. In chapter 19, verse 2, we get this little command, you shall be holy for I, the Lord God, am holy. And that's a summary of this whole second half of the book. Well, where does this second half of the book, this Holiness Code, this half of the book with, with more commands concerning what it is to be holy, where does it, where does it begin? Well, let's read together Leviticus chapter 18. Listen as I read for us God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother, She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she's your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She's your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She's your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to any animal to lie with it. It's a perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. 
For by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You might have heard that God shouts about some sins, but he whispers about sexual sin. Uh, That just didn't resonate with me as I read that chapter this morning. I don't know about you. Oh, if repetition is any indication of emphasis, of emphasis, well, I don't know how many times I said nakedness, but I was too embarrassed to count. I highlighted them all with yellow in my study this week. If the, the, the choice of, of, of swapping out of words is any indication of emphasis, we have depravity here, we have that word abomination here, we have uh, perversion here, things that are detestable here. Oh, oh, that's a lot of words to get at. Get at, in other words, maybe in three letters, as short as I could say it, bad. Really, really bad. If images are any help in drawing an emphasis and helping the imagination, the mind, to, to grasp the seriousness of a matter, well, vomit, vomit's a good image for that. I wouldn't have put it on the page, but the Lord did. The land vomited out the inhabitants of the land to which the Lord was delivering his people precisely because this was the way of life for them. And so the land would vomit his people out if they gave themselves to this way of life with one another. And then if emphasis uh, is revealed at all by the placement of things. Remember I, before I read, I said, what does he get to first? Well, here we've, we've crossed the, the middle of uh, Leviticus chapter uh, 16. And we had chapter 17, which dealt a bit with worship and life, a hinge chapter, and now we get into the holiness code. And this first matter is that of sex and sexual engagement and sexual immorality. And chapters 18, 19, and 20 go together. Chapters 18 and 20 are roughly the same. Uh, chapters 20, chapter 20 is like a version of chapter 19, 18, expands on some topics and deals with consequences and punishments. Chapter 19, which sits right between them, you remember we talked about these triangles in the book. Chapter 19 is where these two point, and chapter 19 is where we have that very famous line, Jesus quoted, everyone knows it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. But it's not insignificant that the first thing that Moses gets to in the holiness code is that of sexual faithfulness and morality and what God would have for his people in this area of the use of their bodies sexually. Well, why does that suggestion that God whispers about sexual sin, why do we want it to resonate with us? Maybe put it this way, why would we prefer that God whispers about sexual sin? Because that line is getting play for a reason. There's something embarrassing about the Bible's teaching. Now, plenty of this uh, we would have much in common with, uh, with neighbors in, 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 uh, in far-off places and near, but, but enough of what the Bible teaches and plenty in here would be objectionable in our age. I get a text sometimes ahead of a sermon. I got a couple ahead of this one. Uh, praying for you ahead of Sunday. Um, thanks for your ministry of the word, and I'll, I'll take that. I'm grateful for your prayers. I need your prayers, and you're welcome to, to tell me that. 
Um, but I'm not always sure, you know, where it's coming from. Maybe I was just on your mind. Or maybe you read the text uh, ahead of Sunday that we published in Friday's email. And sometimes I think, oh, uh, what is it that I'm preaching on Sunday again? Let me make sure I'm, sen- I'm keyed into whatever sensitive subject there may be. And of course, I, I typically am, even if I try to forget where I'm going on Sunday on Saturday. No, I appreciate your prayers. No, we know this is a difficult passage just by reading it. We read this and say, oh, it's one of those Sundays. And it's good we're a church that does this. We talk about it. We work through books of the Bible. And it makes us work through sections of the Bible that are difficult and some that are more tricky. And this is tricky in some way. So let's talk about, let's talk about that. Why are the Bible's commands about sex so difficult for us at times? Difficult to keep, some of them. Difficult to believe. Well, I have a couple reasons on reflection. The first one's obvious enough, and it's, and it's because of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, God had, uh, in his benevolence, Adam and to Eve, and they were to eat of any fruit of the tree, and he gave them one tree of which they weren't to eat. And trusting themselves and doubting the goodness of God and rebelling against the authority of the universe and their very maker, they ate from the tree. And so in Adam, we all die. We've been plunged into sin. And, and for you and I, all of us here, our desire box, our hearts are broken. We want the wrong things. We desire the wrong things. We praise the wrong things. We do the wrong things out of the overflow of a heart that wants the wrong things. So that in sin, we sin. We're sinners and we sin. And our desire box, our the box in our heart which, from which we love things and, and long for things, longs for the wrong things. If this, cha- this chapter, that humans give themselves to these things, that we have wanted some of these things, if not all of them. Some of them are way off the reservation. But that humans have given themselves to all of these things says something about our problem, doesn't it? We really are broken up. So our sin and others' sin, some of us have been cruelly violated and harmed and sinned against by those who regard God as God, who did not love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, but quite the opposite, who loved themselves. And instead of loving you, they have harmed you. And so you read a chapter like this and you find yourself on the other side of it. Somebody else has not kept a command and it has, it has hurt you. And so maybe for that reason, the Bible's prohibitions and restrictions are a, a sweet grace for you to recognize that God is not for the things that have happened to you. And then others in our lives have just been bad examples as we're bad examples to others. So sin, sin's one reason why we have a difficult time with the Bible's commands. One other reason would be that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We don't like the idea that we are wrong. We don't like the idea that we're sinners. And so in unrighteousness, we suppress the truth about God. We exchange the truth about God as revealed in nature and even the very making and the shape of men and women. We suppress that truth in unrighteousness so that we can get about doing whatever we want. And in Romans chapter 1, male-on-male or female-on-female relationships, which is a distortion of God's design, is actually not only put forward as a great sin, but but a very vivid illustration of just how backwards all of us humans are. No, we like the idea that That God might whisper about sexual sin to us or to the world because we're told everywhere and from every direction around us as we follow the course of this world and even the voice in our own sinful heart, we're told that restrictions are just mean and that a a chapter like this is the, the mean side of the mean side of God rather than God in grace coming to us to to outline how and the place of sexuality in our lives. You can think of sex like a fire. 
There's a lot of things in common. A fire, a fire warms a home. A fire needs kindling. It needs upkeep. It needs attention. A fire is attractive and it's, it's neat. We're drawn to it. And a fire can hurt you. And a fire can burn down your home. A fire can burn down a community. No, it's not so much unlike fire. But nevertheless, we don't like the boundaries and we don't like the restrictions and we'd, we'd even accept the premise that God is mean for giving restrictions and drawing boundaries. But that doesn't make any sense. No, we want God to shout about these things just like a good parent will give his child rules concerning how to handle and be around a fire. I'm not a mean dad for asking my three-year-old to stay at some distance. No, that's being a good dad. And the Lord... Our Father is being good to us in all of his restrictive and prohibitions concerning anything, but certainly concerning this precious and powerful gift. Well, another reason the Bible's commands concerning sex are difficult for us, we should admit, is just the Bible's story. The Bible is a long book. It's, it's an ancient book. Some parts are really ancient, Some parts don't sound so ancient, and then they sound really ancient, and then they don't sound so ancient. Leviticus is one of those those parts of the Bible. And sometimes you'll get over, not in context of where the Bible may offer these contrasts, but oversimplifications as this, this is the way to describe the whole Bible, as law on the one side and grace on the other, as if God is mean and just a giver of laws and maker of demands on one side and and he's nice on on the other. Well Paul the apostle in Romans 7 will say that the law is holy and good and and righteous. And even think of as we've been working through Leviticus we can't help but read this chapter on the other side of the day of atonement where where he's taken away our sins not forever and fully like he does in Christ but but where the Lord provides a way for us to meet with him through a priest. He's provided sacrifices graciously and he's provided a priest for us graciously. And he's met our need for forgiveness after Nadab and Abihu presumed on his presence with their sin and going into his presence not according to his commands. Now God has redeemed his people out of Egypt and he's brought them to the mountain and he's given them his law. No, we don't have the death and the resurrection of Jesus yet to bring us as close as we, we will be and as close as God intends for us to be. But, but the people of God to this point are receiving his law as grace from him. And so it's a little overly simple to say the one side of the Bible is law and God is mean and then God is grace over here. And even the law of Christ, Jesus will ratchet up and say even lust in your heart is Adultery. This is even where this law has pointed all along. Or another oversimplification, you've got the Old Testament and the New. Of course we should call it that. One's older and one is new. And the Old Covenant is obsolete, the New Testament says. So there is an old and a newness to it. But then some will say, because the old is old, we disregard it. And it's not useful for us. I only keep with the New And so we get out of having to deal with and reckon with some of the things the Old Testament says. How exactly does the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Moses here, uh, bear on the Christian? Well, that's a good question. And this morning as we work through this chapter, I want to do more than just clarify what was given to Israel here or or more than communicate to you what God expects of New Covenant believers, but I want to help us read our Bible. So we'll do maybe a little more work in that than usual. And some of the work that we'll do and how to read Leviticus will pay off in the weeks ahead. So why do the Bible's commands give us so much trouble? Why are they difficult at times? Well, those are some, those are some initial reflections on, on our way in. Now, now to get into the meat of the sermon, this is where we'll spend most of our time. What does the Lord command of Israel, why and how did it go? What did the Lord command Israel, why and how did it go? Now, this isn't all that a sermon should do. 
Uh, And if we frame a sermon like this and we just get a really clear sense of what this meant to the original readers, well, that's not quite enough. We believe God speaks today to us through his written word preached, and so we're going to receive it that way. But I'm going to hold up that question because we'll spend much of our time noodling on that. But then I'm going to, along the way and at the end of this section, draw out the movement to us as new covenant, new covenant believers. So let's start with that what question. We've got a what, we've got a why, we've got a how. Start with the what question. What did God command? Well, this whole chapter here, you'll notice, is prohibitions. Things not to do. And as I've said, chapter 19 is going to be a mix, but largely positive. So God gives us more than prohibitions. But in this case, we have all kinds of boundaries, things we are not to do. So what does the Lord forbid for his people? Well, verses 6 through 18 Uh, We could put it in in a word, incest. He forbids incest. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives, verse 6, to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. So this has to do with sexual relations with close relatives, with your parents, with your siblings, with your siblings by blood, uh, marriage into your family. Um, We see here that not only is this a matter of it's not a mere matter of biology and in, in, in blood, but it's a matter of familial closeness. And so if one is brought into the family, not by blood, nevertheless, this rule applies. It is God's intention that marriage and sexual relations would happen at some distance from family. And the reason we have such a, a lot of text on this, you know, you read this chapter and you think, my goodness, this is half of the chapter is on incest. Well, we may presume that this needed this kind of clarity. It need, he needed to be this clear about who we're talking about. Families were large, lived together in a large camp. And it would be important that these lines are drawn in a clear fashion to intermarry and engage with those of your close relatives would be Here's the word in verse 17, uh, depravity. So incest in the first place. Uh, second, verse 19, we now have, a, we, we cover a lot of ground in verses 19 through 23. In 19, do not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanness. So that would be the second pro Habition concerning sexual relations. Uh, and this is an interesting one. What is this one doing here exactly? Sometimes Christians are uh, accused of being inconsistent because we don't make a big fuss out of this or even mention it, or maybe we've never heard of it or don't concern ourselves with this command. Maybe for practical purposes and just by relational intuition, this is never a problem, but this isn't something anyone's out there writing articles about. And yet the command, just one following, two following concerning homosexuality gets a lot of ink and gets a lot of airtime and gets a lot of concern. Um, So why the inconsistency? Well, not every command is here for precisely the same Reason. I'll explore the, the principle on which they're here in a bit, but just to draw on some of our work over the last number of weeks. I mean, you'll remember that uh, before we got to Leviticus chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement, that we had laws concerning that which is clean and that which is unclean. And you'll remember that we said that to be unclean is not to be sinful. So a woman in her a menstrual cycle or a woman after having a baby. It's not sinful to have a baby. But there is something that the Lord was teaching his people about blood, life in the blood, contact with a carcass or the loss of blood, representing, if you will, the loss of, of that which represents life, would put you in an unclean state. And you couldn't be in the presence of God in that case. And so what is that teaching the people of God through this this tent meeting sacrificial system he gave them? Well, it's teaching them God is a God of life 
And in his presence, death does not exist or reign. And so in the course of Israel's life, her regular life, her her eating and dinner table life, there were all kinds of rules set up to communicate at every turn of her experience the holiness of God. And uncleanness was not a matter of sin, as we've said. Well, it may be here, I think that's the case, that this is here bundled with these because it's, it goes neatly with these other commands concerning family and the marital bed and because it was wrong to approach a woman in her uncleanness, even though after the resurrection all foods are clean and this does not mean a woman is not welcome in the presence of of God, certainly if she has the Spirit, she has God's presence with her. It may also be here, thinking in terms of the moral component, given the side of the book that we're on, a, a way the Lord was caring for women at this time who would not be warm to being approached at that time of the month. And so maybe the Lord is kind in this way, but I think the accent is there on that word un cleanness. And that would not be unlike, you remember in the first half of the book, there was uh, a command that a woman would be unclean for so many weeks after having a baby. And there appears to be a consideration there for the woman in a period of time when she would be hurting and unable to socialize and go about the temple anyways. And so that status of unclean was actually his kindness to her so that she had a perfectly socially and spiritually acceptable reason just to stay home and even had a calendar. Don't come out. Don't worry about matters at the temple during this time. Nevertheless, the main consideration wasn't the health or recovery consideration, but the matter of blood and proximity to God who is life. So I don't think we're being inconsistent by, if you will, holding some commands today and and maybe leaving others. And, And if I had to, if I had to say we need to keep all of these or let them all go, I'd just say let's keep them all and suggest that we haven't made enough of verse 19. But in any case, I think that's what's going on there. So that's verse 19. Verse 20, moving on in our list. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. And this is, we could just say, adultery. Uh, Engagement with a woman, man, or another, a man, woman, uh, outside the sacred covenant of marriage. Certainly it would be sin before the covenant of marriage or, or during the covenant of marriage. Meditate on that word neighbor's wife. It could be at the gym. Neighbor's wives are there. Uh, in, your, in your neighborhood, neighbor's wives are there. Um, in your workplace, neighbor's wives are there. There are neighbor's wives all over the place. Other people's wives can be attractive. Now, this is why this has to be commanded against. It's not that there's now only when you're married one attractive person. No, we pray that way and we give ourselves to our spouses. But we are nevertheless sinners and we can feed appetites and we can desire a neighbor's wife and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. That command has to be given. It can look like the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And maybe to her the grass looks greener with you. And maybe you're kind of grumpy at home. And maybe she's kind of grumpy at home. Maybe her husband is grumpy at home. And it's really easy to imagine you as the perfect spouse. And easy to imagine her as the perfect spouse. And as you're wrestling with your own sin or not wrestling with it, and wrestling with a a marital partner who has their own sin or isn't wrestling with it, oh, a a toxic combination can emerge to where you're increasingly dissatisfied in your own marriage and increasingly curious about life with someone else's wife. This command had to be given. You shall not lie with your neighbor's wife and so make yourselves unclean with her. 
And don't be thrown off by that unclean word. All uncleanness was not sin. All sin is uncleanness. There were reasons why an Israelite might not be able to go to the tabernacle. That had nothing to do with sin, but their contact with the stain of sin in this world or the the stain of death in this world. God, the God of life, had made home with Israel in the tabernacle and he'd set up home and the light of his glory was there, a consuming fire. And so it was good that there were commands and this clean, unclean, and the food things and the fabrics and all of that to keep the seriousness of this matter up where it belongs and to keep Israel on her toes. But not all uncleanness was sin. Nevertheless, all sin makes you unclean. And adultery would make one unclean. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. Christian, be warned. The next one, verse 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Life, there is life in blood and, and the cruel gods of the ancient Near East formed as they were in the the imaginations and mind and from the hearts of men who imagined God to be like them, would demand the sacrifice and the lives of their children. And how kind is God to offer this prohibition? I do not demand the sacrifice of your children as Molech demands the sacrifice of children. Children are precious. Why is this do what is this doing here in this chapter? I can take some guesses. It may be that at the these temples to other gods there was temple prostitution and and sacrifices offered for the sake of 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 the gods' fertility gifts, it seems simple enough to me to suggest that this command is here because children come from marital intimacy and they're a gift from God and this needed to get said and on this side of the book, do not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. Even a broader theme over the theme of sexual interactions would be, I could have named the, the sermon fam, uh, Holy Family rather than Holy Sexuality. Family. Remember, a fire keeps the home warm. So one way the Lord, for, for his individual people and for the families among his people and for the people themselves, the society, One way that he was loving them and caring for them and leading them was by seeing that the fire of the marriage bed kept the home warm without burning it down. And so here this command concerning what to do with your children and how not to offer them a Molech, well, seems to fit in light of that broader family theme. And if some commands in the Old Testament seem obscure and oh, come on, and not a problem for us today, and perhaps that's the case in some cases, by the grace of God, well, verse 21 applies just as well. It's not a happy stat. Um, We can go in a lot of directions in bringing up the subject of abortion, but it's important to be plain that abortion follows from a society in the human heart that is in rebellion against God and has made an idol out of a whole variety of things. But a simple statistic for you that, that single women who make $47,000 and up abort 32% of their babies. Single women who make 11000 and less abort 8.6% of their babies. Catch that? So there's something else going on here besides a, a health care option for those that are hurting. 
And there are people that are hurting and need care. And Christians are all about offering that care and help. There's something more here going on than than women needing to get by who are up against this temptation. There's something more going on. There is often enough, more often, triply as often, a woman seeking to get ahead, a woman seeking to get more. In an age that doesn't call children precious, Tempted not to see her baby as precious. And there's forgiveness for every kind of sin. We have the day of atonement in this book. Our sins can be taken away. And through Jesus' perfect sacrifice, all of our sins can be taken away. And your sin of abortion can be fully and completely forgiven. So that you can testify to God's great grace against your great sin. Because you have received his full forgiveness. We don't need to de-emphasize the sinfulness of sin in order to be free of guilt or to say we have a good message as Christians. No, we can shout about our sin. We can shout about sin because we fully intend to shout all the louder about the grace of God. And it's an offer to you if that's been your sin. But don't let us get wound up in tricky arguments about abortion being necessary for a society because some are on really hard times when 32% of those making enough to support themselves are aborting their children. So be careful about the arguments you receive. Moving on from Molech. Now, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male As with a woman, it is an abomination. Now, I have too many books on my shelf about this. In fact, I've got a whole shelf in which I collected and worked through, to some extent, any meaningful contribution to the conversation about same-sex attraction and homosexuality and all of this and gay marriage from about 2011 to 2015. Um, A lot of us in pastoral ministry were giving a lot of energy to this to get clear in our categories and get clear on the Bible. And I'm glad I bought those books and I'm glad I worked through those arguments. And it came out in the same place, of course. I didn't expect I wouldn't, but to engage the arguments that are being made out there in the workplace, in the public sphere, in college campuses. But isn't it interesting that you get a verse? It's a short verse too. Look at this. Verse 6 through 18, that's on incest. And, And I suggested why. And the reason I suggested why is because it needed clarity. Close relatives, well, how close? Well, this is what I'm talking about. Over and over and over and over and over again, verses 6 through 18. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Now that is straightforward. It is not expanded upon because it does not need more clarification. Homosexual practice is deeply immoral and abomination. We all have desires to do things that we should not. Sinful and deceitful desires we should call them. To act on them is a greater sin. I appeal to you by the word of God and, and because of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God, not to give yourself to that sin if that's your sinful temptation. It is this straightforward. And be careful about the arguments that are out there. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there these days. For example, oh, he was just talking about sacrificing children at, at a pagan temple. So verse 22 has to do with a certain kind of male prostitution at the temple. No, uh, that's not what it means. Um, or, oh, he's talking about life in the land when they get into land. So this has to do with males and it has to do with males in the land under the old covenant, not today. No. Um, or um, this has to do with, um, sorry, they didn't understand the whole concept of sexual orientation right now. So this is just behind the times. And that's not how we read our Bibles either. 
No, plain enough, you shall not lie male as with a woman. In other words, there's a certain way that a male and a female fit together, and you're not, try, you're not supposed to try to make two men fit together. You're not supposed to try to make two women fit together. It's straightforwardly an abomination. Now, some would suggest as well that maybe this has to do with um, uh, scenarios in which there isn't consent, you'll hear that, or when there is um, like a, a, a violent act, rape involved. That's another argument for verse 22, but it doesn't track. Remember I said chapter 20 parallels chapter 18. Chapter 20 is going to be explicit because as two males go together, there's two different types of engagement. And chapter 20 will say, both are to be punished in Israel's theocracy. And the word both is there to indicate that both are culpable. Now, that doesn't mean that in some sexual sins, there isn't a true victim and there isn't a true um, offender. But that means that in this case, what he's talking about is straightforward homosexuality as we, as we call it. Another argument that I want to make on this simple topic before we move on is this. Sometimes you'll hear, oh, you're picking and choosing. I shouldn't say you'll hear. I'm speaking to a mixed crowd. So maybe this is something that you've entertained or struggled with. Um, And there's patience for people struggling with arguments. They're getting on the internet or from other places. And we sit under the word of God every week and let the word of God renew our minds and And we work through these things together, and so there's room for you to work these things through. But let me engage you with an argument. Maybe you've suggested that we pick and choose, Christians do. So we don't don't keep the food laws or this law about fabric, we'll see next week. Um, But we do we do pick these laws, and so you you know the whole shellfish thing. Oh, you have a problem with shellfish. You don't have a problem with shellfish, but you do have a problem with with Uh, gay marriage, for example. This is an argument that should clean this up and persuade you that would be the least obvious on the surface. Remember that the book comes in two halves, as we've said a number of times. And that that first half of the book has to do with approaching God through blood, a holy God through blood. And that a number of those commands concerning clean and unclean laws in which we get all of those food commands. Remember those strange, the strange commands like about the insects? So um, you know, if an insect has jointed legs, you can eat it, it's clean. But if it's got wings and four legs, you can't eat it, it's not clean. And remember we said that the Lord was teaching his people Uh, about holiness. So an animal, a jointed legged uh, insect is made and fitted for the environment of the ground. But the insect with wings and with four legs, it's kind of like he can't pick. And we didn't say that God didn't make the insect that way, but he was was dividing up creation in such a way so that at every turn, Israel was having to discern what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. And some of it may feel arbitrary. We do our best to understand why. My point is, on the first half of the book, so much of this is not tied to creation order. It's not rooted in the moral structure of the universe. It's even strange to us. And it doesn't apply to us anymore. But on the second half of the book, this is where your commands about adultery and about homosexual sexual practice and about incest come from. In other words, the very structure of the book is teaching you something. The first half of the book structured Israel's life in order to teach her about what it means to approach God and how he's holy. But the second half of the book, as it gives them laws in order to be holy as he's holy, gets into this kind of thing. In other words, your shellfish commands in the first half of the book are not paired with your commands not to sleep with your neighbor's wife. Now, you can ponder that, but I found that intriguing and further convincing. 
One more, verse 23. You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to any animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Amen. If I'm a betting man, if I was a betting man, uh, if I was a betting man, I would say in my lifetime, and I think this is being generous, you will have the commodification of bestiality. Now, why would I say that? Because in terms of the moral operating system of the the West right now, having left its Judeo-Christian mores, whether or not the founders of our own nation fully believed a full Christian gospel and in the witness of the Old and the New Testaments, there was nevertheless a, a straightforward commitment to the basic moral structure of the universe. Having left that and adopted a principle that you are your own boss of you, that you decide what's true and good and beautiful. And in fact, the most important thing you can do as you is to express yourself. Your desires are you. And you ought to be proud of your desires and give yourself to them. Well, if we've got a page full of commands like this, apparently these kinds of desires come out of the human heart. Then I see no reason why there would not be a market around and the promotion of and the the selling of this kind of depravity in my lifetime, as I've said. Well, hopefully, hopefully not. Notice that there's a general progression here. So we've worked from incest down to bestiality. I say a general progression, not a technical progression. In the chapter 20, the order is going to be a little bit different. But notice that the words for certain sins are different. Punishments are different for different sins. Just a little takeaway here along the way that not all sins are the same. Some sins are more egregious than others. Lust in your heart is, is as adultery as Jesus will say, but, but physically engaging your neighbor's wife is more egregious than lusting after your neighbor's wife in your heart. All a sin against God, all will get you hell for their offenses against a holy God. And bestiality marks the end of the road here. No doubt, because other sins have been committed along the way. Just an observation to note, as we have to remind ourselves sometimes, it's a common trope that all sins are the same and they are not all the same, although all sins are our sins. Well, we've heard God's commands for Israel. Now, uh, another question. What about us? Let me do a little bit of instruction on this point. Sometimes you'll hear, like, how do we decide what comes over to us as Christians? Sometimes you'll hear that the law can be divided into three parts. Laws that were related to Israel's civil life, laws related to her ceremonial or ritual life at the tabernacle, and laws that are related to morality. And that it's the civil and the ceremonial that go away, but it's the moral laws that that come over to the Christian and still apply. Or maybe you'll hear the Christian, are we still bound by these? Do I have to obey that command? Am I bound by that law on the page? And you'll hear that. Well, if it's a moral law, yes, you're bound by it. Some difficulty with that. It's not an entirely unhelpful distinction. The thing is, in Leviticus, as we've seen, they don't move neatly in those categories. The Old Testament authors and the New Testament authors will speak about the law of Moses as a package. So I think there's a better way for our purposes of discerning what comes over and specifically how it comes over. Some of the commands we have in the Old Covenant, we could say, are according to God's creation design. So follow me here. You're in high school. Congratulations, seniors, uh, having just graduated. I know there's a lot of graduations going on right now. And in high school, you needed a hall pass to go to the bathroom. You just graduated. Are you bound by that law anymore? You can go to the bathroom whenever you want. You can ask your parents if that's a thing at 18 years old, but you can go to the bathroom probably whenever you want. Now, let's say at your school, some things had happened and there was this rule. It was this explicit that you can't punch your neighbor. Well, you've graduated. Are you still bound by that law? Well, you have to think about this because you're not under the rubric. You're not under the 
the law structure of your school anymore. So on the one hand, no, you're not bound by that law. But you know better because that law was a part of your school's set of rules because it was a rule to begin with. In other words, marriage has been with us since Genesis 2 and it's exclusive, it's permanent, it's complementary, men and women. This is merely an an outworking of that. Prohibitions to sharpen and clarify and and channel Israel's sexual activity into God-honoring marriage. And so, no, you and I are not under this law. But marriage was a thing before this law was given at Sinai. You see? That makes sense? So don't punch your neighbor and don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Other kinds of laws, we could say, are a part of God's design for redemption. The clean and unclean laws, as we've talked about, laws concerning food, laws concerning fabrics. And in this case, another school illustration may help as the law is a tutor for us to lead us to Christ. Uh, When you're a kid in kindergarten, you've got the big lined paper and you're supposed to write the same letter over and over again. And you're supposed to write the same word over and over again. It's that big knobby pencil and that, that paper made of wood chips. I can see it. You remember that? Um, don't give the kids the good paper. Um, and it's, but it's teaching them to draw inside the lines, right? So some of these laws function more, more that way. Laws tied to creation design, laws tied to redemption design. More detail is needed, but that's enough for now. Why did God give his people these laws? Important question. And we get, we're not going to spend the most time on this, but this, this is where the power is for these laws to be, to be kept. And and I'll, I'll summarize it under two headers because of who they are and because of where they're going. Look in verses one through five with me. Speak to the people of Israel to say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Every culture has its statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. Here it is again. I am the Lord your God. Therefore, keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Because of who they are, they're the Lord's and the Lord is holy and so they're to be holy as he is holy. And so Peter will speak to us in just that way as we're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are to be holy as God is holy for we have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. And because of where they're going, they're going into the land and he has vomited. You look at the, the verses here at the end. Uh, For by all these sins, abominations, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean and so they could not be in the land. Notice verse 5 here. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. There's all these motivations, who they are and where they're going, but there's this interesting if motivation. If a person does them, he shall live by them. What does that mean? Is that just... Like he's saying the same things. Well, if you do them, you're living by them. Does it mean if you do them, you'll have a better life because things will hang together for you? And that's generally a rule. If you do these things, you'll be better off, promise. Highly suggest, highly suggest chapter 18. Or is there something more going on here? Well, as we head into the last part of our sermon, let's turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. If you're comfortable doing that, you can use your, you can use your index. Ezekiel's after Lamentations, after Jeremiah, after Isaiah. Ezekiel was writing in order to make sense out of Israel's exile from the land. In later years, Israel, because of her sin, would be exiled from her land. And this is Ezekiel giving explanation, interpretation as to why. Verse 5 of chapter 18, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, 
I hear that sound. I must not have given you the chapter. I'll give you five more seconds. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eye to idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He's righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. You recognize that? In verse 13, opposite, someone commits violence, he shall not live, he has done all these abominations, he shall surely die, his blood shall be upon himself. Verse 19, you, yet you say, why should not the son, the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? Well, when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely, surely live. Turn with me to chapter 20 now. You see, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, that promise that if then at the head of this holiness code is in the mind of Ezekiel. This is how he's understanding his times. I'll just skip like a rock across parts of this chapter, but this is the story of of Israel. Verse 9, I made myself known to them, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. I led them out of the land of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes. I made known to them my rules by which a person does them. He shall live. Verse 13, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness and they did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules. Do you hear it? by which if a person does them, he shall live. Verse 21, but the children rebelled against me, their children in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. So the explanation for why Israel is in exile, vomited out of the land, is precisely because of the promise in 18.5, if you keep my statutes and rules, you will live in the land with me in my holy presence. And if not, as Adam was ejected from the garden, and as Nadab and Abihu were struck dead at the tabernacle, so my people will be ejected from my land if they do not obey my word. And in verse 25 now, moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. What is that saying? It's saying that Israel did not have life in herself or the capacity to meaningfully worship God and obey him from a heart that loves him first and proved this over and over again, and the law which God gave her in grace, which was holy and good, could not change her. Could not make her new. Could not cause her heart to long for and love God as he had intended for them to do. So how's it going for you? You can stay there in Ezekiel. But how's it going for you? We've talked about Israel a good bit, and I've made some connections for us. You kind of feel like Israel. You've been around the block, and you've sinned, and you've sinned, and you've sinned, and your heart is hard, and it feels like there is no way out of this. Or maybe there's a whole lot of sin in your past, in this very area, and I recognize on a Sunday there's all kinds of hearers And many of us have sinned in some profoundly embarrassing and shameful is the right word. Uncovered nakedness, you could translate it sexual activity, but uncovered nakedness gets at that shame and dishonor that is actually intended there and you feel shame and dishonor. Or maybe for you, there's a sense of pride. You, You might not put it that way, but you've You've walked a pretty straight line and you haven't done any of this stuff, certainly not with animals. And um, 
Maybe you've lusted here and there, but you don't, you don't have a season of profound sin against the Lord sexually. No, but Jesus, Jesus would have you be careful about, careful about boasting, for we are all condemned in sin under this law. And where it points to the heart, in fact, as the Old Testament unfolds, he doesn't delight in sacrifice, but in a, a heart given, a heart given to him. Well, let me encourage you. Back to Ezekiel. Oh, in chapter 33, turn to 36 with me, over and again, we will, we will see Leviticus 18.5 repeated and, and a call to turn lest she die. Israel is on her deathbed. But in chapter 36, we have quite a vision. We have a vision of Israel as a valley of dry bones, which is about as dead as you get. So bones are dead. A valley of bones would be more dead than that, if it's possible. Valley of dry bones, that's really, 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 really dead. And that is the picture of the people of God, even with all God's gracious dealings with them. But look at what he promises in verses 25 through 27 of chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Here it is. I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you Here it is now. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Chapter 37, verse 24. We find the one through whom God will do this. My servant David will be a king over them and they shall have one shepherd, the good shepherd, And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes and they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace. That's reconciliation with God with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Oh, it'll last forever, unlike this temporary Mosaic covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you recognize that? And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in her midst forever. So God's intention is to solve that problem. And in the Lord Jesus, turn with me. No, don't turn there with me. I just want you to listen to this. In the Lord Jesus, the Lord does more than just take away our sins, friends. We need more than a cross. On the cross, Jesus dies for our sins to take them away, to cleanse us from sin and from death. But the reason we need Jesus to rise from the grave is because we need resurrection life. And it is precisely the promise through the prophets given that the spirit would be given and that his people would be raised to new life that is manifest here in the life of our church. So that you and I can read this and rejoice from 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, oh, we're not, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, that's worse than chapter 20 of Leviticus. In verse 11 now of 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so friends, we have a greater law from Jesus, but we have a greater life from Jesus. And the gospel is not merely the good news that God takes away our sins and fully forgives us, but that he makes us new so that we have a heart that can respond to his commands. 
It can respond to his commands. One right here that I'll read from you. That if you have the spirit of God and have turned to Jesus by faith, you can keep. Friends, flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, see this tabernacle here? Even better. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so, friends, glorify this holy God in your body. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this book of Leviticus with all of its oddities and odds and ends and confusing passages and apparent, at times, contradictions. And oh, we thank you for the New Testament, which helps us to read it and to see where this shadow points to the Lord Jesus himself and to the greater presence that we know by your spirit personally. For God, even as this book communicated that your presence among your people is intended to transform them, we recognize that it was a deficient presence. It was not all that you intend, but, but Father, now by your spirit, we have your very presence with us, and by your spirit, we are made new and given new life, and so we are transformed into the likeness of your Son, so that we can be holy as you are holy. And Father, that's not without sin, as some of these passages we have read are from the book of 1 Corinthians, where there were great sins in that congregation. But we thank you that with them, we can take this assurance from your word that we have been washed. And whatever we have given ourselves to as a matter of pattern and life, we can say with the Apostle Paul, such were some of you as we speak to one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.